Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast. I'm your host, James Baker. The LTAD Network is a global platform that gives you the opportunity to learn, share, and connect with experts in the field of athlete development from a range of settings, including schools, academies, universities, and elite sport. Our focus is on helping practitioners translate knowledge into practice, helping you to enhance your systems, coaching, and programs with your athletes in your environment. Our podcast is just one of a number of opportunities we create for you to be able to learn from leaders in the field of athlete development. Don't forget to sign up to the LTAD Network online learning platform at www.ltadnetwork.com and get your first month free using the code free month. There is over 150 hours of content in our video library from our workshops and conferences, as well as our youth physical development pathway resource. Alternatively, you can sign up for a free account and enjoy a number of excellent presentations, webinars, and other written resources, including the LTD Network Youth Physical Development Model. This episode is sponsored by Vald Performance. Vald Systems offer unparalleled insight into performance, injury risk, and rehabilitation, driven by a multidisciplinary team of sports scientists, researchers, clinicians, designers, developers, and engineers. Vald systems enable you to adopt a truly athlete-centric approach when it comes to understanding human movement, performance, injury risk, and rehabilitation. Vald systems can be used across various disciplines from strength and conditioning to medical and rehabilitation, offering unparalleled insight into musculoskeletal and neural performance. Check out their website at www.valdperformance.com. Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast, sponsored by Valve Performance. Today, we are joined by former international decathlete and director of Brockman Athletics, Martin Brockman. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. Hey, James. Thanks for having me on. Nice to catch up. Yeah, great. Great to catch up. And I'm sure there's a lot in this uh, conversation for people to take away, um, given your experience Um in uh, in your uh, obviously sport of athletics and coaching as well. So um, for those people who aren't familiar with you um, and the work that you've been doing over the past few years, can you give us a brief overview of your career journey so far and what you're currently doing uh, with Brockman Athletics? Um, well, I mean, most of my background comes from, uh, you know, I spent most of my 20s enjoying life being an athlete. So I was an international decathlete for around 10 years. Um, culminated in uh, bronze medal at Commonwealth Games, uh, um, and but throughout throughout my training career, I was always coaching as well. So by the time yeah. I retired as an athlete, I'd already been coaching voluntarily for eight years. Um, so I did my degree towards the back end of my career when I saw retirement coming, and then went to be a coach at Brunel University. So I was, I was working with their track and field team, coaching their you know Bucks Bucks team. Basically, all the field events came under me. Um, and the decathletes and heptathletes um, and coached a little bit with the European juniors team before I got invited out to Qatar um, to work with the Spire Academy, obviously where we, we met. Um, so there I, I, worked, I helped to build the development program, um, putting the technical frameworks in place, competition frameworks in place, um, and then went to be the senior jumps coach as well as managing the, the development program. So I kind of had a hand in the whole pathway. For people that um, and then, aren't familiar with that development and performance part, could you maybe just give an insight to the the age brackets that that deals with? Yeah, so Aspire is basically an academy for secondary age students. So 
kids coming in, we, we do tenant identification at, grade, at year six, so 10, 11 years old, bring them in. And the development program was the first three years of that program. So it was, it was putting in the foundations, teaching them how to train, um, trying to build a love for athletics, which, which was my department. And then after three years, we should have identified what their best route is in terms of uh, are they going to be a, a sprinter, a jumper, a thrower, endurance, and we we fit, try and feed them into the senior coach yeah. down down the route. Yeah. Um, and and what's been next? What followed the followed that work with the the jumps program? Well, t- since so. I was senior jump coach for four years, um, and then I've just left um, Aspire now to run my own my own company, which is the Brockman Athletics. So, having built that pathway from you know 10, 11, first engagement with athletics, then all the way through to exiting the academy at eighteen years old, um, I kind of built this curriculum, or at least had this curriculum framework, and and a lot of it kind of in my head as well. So, I went to get that down on paper. Um, and I go and work with schools all around the world, just come back from traveling around Asia, visiting schools and teaching them how to do the fundamentals right. It's really at that development age. But how do we do deliver that correctly that sets them up on that journey for what they need at the high performance? That's really what the business is, is about. Yeah, that sounds great. And I know as a former PE teacher, the education around track and field is a little bit limited in the PE teacher training programs. I definitely did not come out feeling confident to deliver um, the the uh, the basics of the sport and didn't really understand the progressions and the, and the key things to teach. And I think, yeah, I think it'll be great to go through that on the podcast now and sort of understand. You know, it, it we'll we'll obviously talk about your your uh, the work that you've done through development, through performance, and hopefully give people some great take-homes around the uh, not only the sort of current state of play, but maybe what they can do about it and how they can deliver deliver things a bit better. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really the interesting thing about athletics is that, like you said, every school is deliver, delivering athletics and most schools have it as their sports day event. So it's kind of the yeah. pride of their school sports um, curriculum. And yet... Every single school has a football or rugby or cricket specialist, netball specialist. I've never seen a school with an athletic specialist. And yet every single school is doing it. So, um, and like you said, also th- this education that they receive is very much, here's how you do a long jump. Here's yeah. the technique you need to know to do a long jump. Here's the technique to throw a jab in. But we never look at what are the, what skills make up those events. So th- yeah. again, this is what I'm trying to deliver now is it's not so much, okay, he- here's the end result we're looking for but here's the underpinning skills that you need to get your athletes to produce that performance. Yeah. So what, what do you think um, in terms of that current state of play with how it's delivered in schools and clubs, where, where is it at in those realms and what do you think, uh, you know, is the way forward? Well, I, I think, um, I think in, in schools, particularly we've done my, my sports done quite a bad job in terms of education I think yeah. the only option is to go on the athletics course and then you're you're learning about energy system development and all these physical capacities and and you're learning about the elite end technique. And yet most of our teachers are delivering athletics in a six-week curriculum, which means yeah. we'll do each event once and then we'll come yeah. back to it next year. So yeah. th- that that kind of work is irrelevant for most for most schools. So we really need to readdress how we how we're educating teachers. 
Um, and especially at the younger ages, bringing it back to a skills-based um, program where it's not so much about how do we get these kids to do a long jump, but what can these kids learn about, uh, what skills can they learn for having learned the long jump? So um, in terms of clubs, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because athletics is probably one of the last sports that still likes to be a voluntary sport. Um, and when you have volunteers, you get well-meaning people, but they're not people that are highly qualified. They're not people yeah. that are highly experienced, people that have some free time. Um, so again, I, I, I think the, the, I mean, I'm actually not very highly qualified coach because I went through the first two levels of it and realized I haven't learned anything here, especially having been an athlete or I was an athlete at the time. It, it, the level we were learning about was, was kind of so poor, but that's the standard you can expect for people who aren't being paid. Like yeah. my, my, my friends that are tennis coaches, they have to pay to, to do their course because they're going to get paid. And they, and if they want to get high qualification, they have to prove that they're at that standard. We're just desperate to get anyone to coach. And I think as yeah. soon as you you stop being a voluntary sport, you can start paying coaches and then you can hire, hold them to higher expectations. Yeah. So the the volunteer thing is a good thing and a bad thing in in that in that sense, in terms of... Yeah, we wouldn't survive yeah. without them. Um, no. But that doesn't mean that it's a, it's a good long-term strategy. No understood so thinking of um the implementation now what what do you see as the major challenges and problems to the implementation of good practice in with with the uh, coaching athletics at a youth level i mean when <clears throat> most schools that i work with basically say to me we either don't have enough space um, or we don't have all the equipment that we need. Um, and then those that do um, worry that they don't have the knowledge across all of the events. So especially when you're teaching football, you've got a few skills that you need to teach or netball, you've got a few skills you need to teach, but you teach it within the context of the game. Whereas athletics looks like 10 individual, 12 individual sports that you need to teach and different knowledge for each one. So it, it's tough. What in terms of space and equipment, when you actually look at athletics, most, most schools think we need a 400-meter track. But actually, most of athletics happens within a 30-meter straight line. Long jump is 30-meter run-up. High jumps within 20 meters. Shot yeah. put, javelin. Then You don't need huge spaces. Um, and if we take a skills-based approach, you don't need lots of equipment either. You can do throwing with balls. You can you know, throw with the in indoor javelins. We can jump over hurdles instead of jumping into the long jump pit. If, we, if we're trying to teach how to jump, it really doesn't matter if we're teaching that in the, into the sand or if we're just teaching that over a hurdle. Um, yeah. so, but, uh, so I think that there is an issue with most schools just have a grass field. Um, but there's an awful lot you can do in a sports hall if you're looking at it from a what can we get out of athletics rather than how do I get my kids to be able to form a 180 high jump. Yeah. What would you um, what would you say to teachers? Because I think I'm thinking back to my time teaching now and we're dealing with classes of 32 kids in certain cases and, and sometimes even more if we had a couple of groups merged together. And I felt like that was one of the challenges with athletics. You've got quite a technical sport. You've got these massive groups. Sometimes you've got 
obviously relatively dangerous equipment in terms of with javelins and things like that. You're teaching it in the British summer. Grass is slippery as hell. They're, I think the teachers, to a certain extent, are petrified of something happening, which puts a limit on it, but they haven't seen other ways, like like having taught at MPE, then come and worked with people like yourself and Rudy and Lee and Ross. You see all these different ways to teach stuff. And I'm like, if I'd known that back then, there are so many things that we could, um, there are so many things we could do. So, I mean, what what, what would your recommendations maybe be for some people working with larger groups, um, which they see as a challenge to delivery, what, what would your advice be to, to doing that? I mean, I, I, with large groups, especially with younger kids, I'm not teaching the event. I'm teaching concepts through, through the event. So, so if, I'm, if I'm teaching jumping, I'm teaching skipping skills, I'm teaching postures, I'm teaching rhythms, um, I'm teaching coordination of the upper and lower body. Um, and it's all within this kind of masquerade of the long jump. We're learning long jump today, but long jump is, can you pull your leg and time your driving knee at the same time? Um, so all of that can be done in an open space with 30 kids all going at the same time if you need to. Yeah. Um, it can look messy, um, but but this is where, when I'm coaching large groups, I, I'm, I'm basically putting on a show. I'm trying to engage them in what they think is is long jump. Um, whilst we teach these skills, I'm doing demonstrations that make them go, wow, because, okay, I'm lucky enough that I can do that. But I'm teaching the concept of how to jump. I'm not teaching yeah. long jump, really. I think that's one of the limitations. I think definitely for me, as someone who wasn't, didn't do a lot of athletics as a kid, just literally the same experience you're talking of, six weeks, every summer, a sports day, um, and then coming around to try and teach it, there were definite, I, I, I felt like it had to be closer to the, close to the event as possible, but it's quite clearly not. And I think that's probably a, a misconception in PE sort of education because it was the stuff we were taught on our subject pathway was very much like, right, this is the event, this is the approach, this is the takeoff, the long jump, just using, you know, that example. And then it's like, right, well, yeah, how do you do that well with 30 kids when the school I went to did not have, uh, you know, didn't have a long jump pit. It had been covered over yeah. at the back end of the rugby pitch. But, but this is where my decathlon background kind of comes in handy because the question I get all the time is how, how the hell do you change the 10 events? And yeah. the reality is you, you can't. What you're doing is you're teaching skills that are transferable across multiple events. So we're yeah. teaching to have really good posture. We're teaching to have really good rhythm. We're teaching timing. And the timing of the driving knee is the same whether you're doing hurdles, a high jump, a long jump. It's yeah. the same as when you're sprinting. You've got to be timed with how you, how you contact the ground. So if you teach that skill in across four or five different events, you can then transfer that skill anywhere you want. So I'm, I'm now one of those irritated people who can play almost any sport. And it's, it's, it's because... It, it's am I did I do decathlon in 10 events because I'm really skillful or did I become really skillful because I happen to have done all those 10 events and it's it's obviously that way around because I've been playing and experimenting with movement I can now pick up anything and that is what primary or or lower secondary P should be allowing students to express movement in as many possible ways we can in as many contexts as possible 
And then later on, when you say, let's now learn long jump in the sand, yeah, they, they have all the skills they need and it's easy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think even like I, you know, you've, you've seen me with my kids down at Aspire probably, and I take them into, you know, used to take them into the gymnastics hall. And there's so many movements that you can actually see that can transfer like from things like parkour or basketball or other things that, that I could definitely see the patterns that we would be able to, to use from other, other activities. And I mean, I think going, thinking about it, the other, the other way round, like what, what do you think for, you know, let's say for example, and, and I, and I've been privy to conversations like this that question the value of doing athletics in the PE curriculum because of the things you've mentioned, lack of space, lack of expertise, the weather's rubbish. Like if there, if you were, if you were pitching for time in a PE curriculum or, or for athletics to remain, what would, what would you be saying, you know, the, the benefits are to those, um, you know, PE teachers or head of department? But the, the, the thing about athletics is that it is just fancy variations of running, jumping and throwing. Yeah. Um, which, which are the foundation of all other sports. So in whereas in a sport like football, running is one of the skills we need to have in order to be a, a good footballer. We need to have some speed, we need to run well under control to be able to control the ball, that kind of thing. Whereas so so it's one of the skills we need. Whereas in athletics, it's the outcome. Mm. So therefore, the skills we're developing in athletics are the I call them within Brockman Athletics, the foundational movements of the fundamental movement skills of running, jumping, throwing. So if, if you want to know how your footballers, your netballers, your rugby players can run better, look at the people that run faster than anyone else in the world. If you want yeah. to know how to throw far, 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 we have the people who throw the furthest in the world. So what are they doing and what skills do they have that we can then transfer to our other sports? So if you can look at athletics as a, as a sport on its own, but you can also look at it as almost high level fundamental movement skills yeah a donor sport to many other sports yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, i mean obviously i don't like to look at it as a as purely just a training for other sports because no, no. for me it is a sport but of there is definitely an element of look at look if mutas bashim jumps two meters 40 in the high jump well, what is it he's yeah. doing that we can do in you know in basketball to perform a layup or to do a slam dunk because yeah. he's definitely doing some training that you're not doing as a basketball player. Or yeah. has, and he has skills you don't have. So mm -hmm. that's where I think it's really useful is that if you can teach people to run really well, and jump really well, and throw really well, all other sports become kind of second nature. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, would, I think as well, there's some benefits to, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of kids who go to school, they, they get the team sport exposure the traditional team sports, but I think there's probably broader benefits, not just the sort of physical and the skill-based stuff to being in athletics and being in an individual sport. What what would you say it's taught you maybe, or, or could teach kids maybe from like a psychological standpoint, if they go down that route of actually participating on their own? I mean, I I did every sport when I was at school. And I always struggled with, um, with the team sports in terms of other people could win it for me, they could lose it for me, and I could win it for me, and I could lose it for, for everyone as well. You know, and, yeah. um, being an individual sport, it's all on you. 
And the result you get is a direct correlation to the work you put in quite often. Yeah. You know, there's, there's limits to talent, of course, but, but I mean, we see it a lot with Aspire. Some, some, some kids you never thought would go anywhere, went somewhere just because of the work they put in. Yeah. Um, but also when it's a, the talent that, like, put the work in. Yeah, I mean, that's how I became an athlete. Of I put in loads of work and I saw people much more talented than me not. <laughs> um, and the guys who had both kicked my ass, but that's how sport works. But um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I would say, I mean, that just, just that part of the journey, just learning to that the, the, the work you put in correlates to, to the output is a huge thing. But also because it's an individual sport, you get to spend much more time doing self-reflection. You know, with yeah. team sports, you're looking at how am I interacting with everyone else? Whereas in individual sport, you're how am I interacting with myself? How how are my skills changing, improving? I did this, what was the outcome? Whereas in football, you pass the ball and it could be your bad pass, it could be his bad control. It's it's yeah. more difficult to know because athletics it's all about you. It's something actually I I was having a conversation about working in athletics um just Friday past with some people who work in football. And uh, I said, you know, for me as a strength and conditioning coach, it was a brilliant experience because in the same way that the athlete gets feedback on their input, we also as S&C coaches get direct, direct feedback on did what we do make the athlete go faster or did we mess this up? And I thought it was I think as an S&C coach, every person should, if they can, get that kind of it get that kind of exposure in their career because you start to really see the outcomes of what you're doing in, in football. I could, you know, do whatever. And like you say, maybe I made him faster, maybe I didn't, but it doesn't really have an impact on, on the outcome. So I think it's a sport that can be, there's so much can be learned from it in, in many ways as an athlete and also as a, as a, you know, SNC coach or something as well. Yeah, we, I mean, we see that quite a lot with SSC coaches within athletics. It's not that many because most coaches, if you want to be a really good coach, you kind of in athletics, you need to be good yeah. SSC as well because it's so closely related to the performance. But you yeah. see almost with, with young athletes, if you make them stronger, they'll get faster because they don't have a strength base. But yeah. you also see that a lot in other, in other team sports. They haven't really done that hard work. So yeah. if you get them stronger, they'll, they'll also run faster on the football pitch and they'll, they'll battle a bit harder or whatever. They'll be stronger. Um, but strength doesn't necessarily correlate to performance in athletics. And at the higher end, once that battery is full, it then can actually have a negative effect. And I think a lot of SSE coaches learn that through working with athletics and then have to kind of restructure how they think about strength training. That definitely, definitely happened for me in terms of, you know, I would say with team sport athletes, we definitely, I would, if I look back at what we did with them, we probably squeezed it a little bit too hard too soon in terms of some of the strength work and things like that. And, and working with guys like yourself and, and Ross and Lee, it was actually like, we could, we can slow cook this actually a little bit more. We don't need to go there and, you know, keeping the main thing, the main thing as well, which is the sprinting and jumping and the plyometrics and stuff that, that are obviously super important to, to those events too. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it was an evolution in my time in athletics of like, right, let's build the skills, let's develop the strength qualities. You know, the, the long-term integration of the plyometric work was probably, you know, a bigger feature early on. And then, you know, you start pushing the, tapping the strength work uh, a little bit harder when, they've, when they're up at that performance level. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess the difference between the events is is that obviously getting stronger will always help, but each event within athletics expresses force slightly differently. So sprinters have to express all their force in such a tiny amount of time, whereas a shot putter is on the ground and they're really pushing against the ground, and that that's a that's a different force requirement. Um, so I mean, this is what we did in decathlon. Is that I, one of the things I love to do? How do you structure a week? Is but I, I, one of the key things I looked at was how are the, how are the athletes expressing sport, uh, force across these different events, and how long are they how how long do they have on the ground to express that force, and started to cluster those events together. So things like hurdles and long jump and javelin go really well together because they're elastic and they're fast events, and events like accelerations, the high jump, the shot put, we have a bit longer on the ground to express force. That's the we'll cluster those events together in terms of technical training but then we compare that with our strength training so everything's kind of compatible on throughout the day yeah so on those days what what would that i know we're going a little bit off tangent here but what what sort of work would you be doing from a strength perspective to be compatible and complementary to what was happening on the track what what just some example exercises maybe of of things that you would utilize well, I mean, if you're on a big, if you're on essentially what's a pushing day, the acceleration, uh, block start, the, the high jumps a, a little bit, it's not really a push, but it's a bit longer on the ground. The shot put's definitely a push. That's the day you can do your big squatting work if you want to. But the days that are you're pulling long jump takeoffs, you're pulling the, against the ground, your your ground contacts are much, much smaller, um, but you're trying to you're trying to actively strike the ground rather than push against the ground. So that's the day you put on your plyometrics work and your bounding work. Um, so it, the, that kind of S&C got spread throughout the week where rather than have, we, we'd have a couple of gym days, but actually it was because we had all this technical stuff, it was kind of hidden within the, you know, we'll, we'll do all our technical work. Now go and do your 30 minutes of strength work. But yesterday yeah. we did 30 minutes of plyometrics. That's your hours training session. It's just hidden across two days. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, changing tact a little bit now. So you talked about at the beginning your work, which sort of spanned the development continuum from development from that young age where they're coming into Aspire right out to the the performance groups. But also you've obviously got your experience with your senior athletes from your time before Aspire as well. So how does your coaching change and evolve at different stages of that pathway? Um, so I think, like I said, to begin with, with the really young ones, it's very much putting on a show. Um, it's all about engagement. It's all about getting them to love what they're doing. And it's, and it's trying to create an environment that allows them to play with movement, allowing them to make mistakes. Um, because in making mistakes at some point, they're going to catch, catch one and it'll be perfect. And they just learn how they express movement. Remember, yeah. all, all these kids, different stages in their development. I mean, your LTA did. They're, they're all coming at different stages, they're at different growth rates, different heights, different strength capabilities, and therefore they're going to hit different angles, different positions. Um, so allowing them to um, play with movements um, and create an environment where it's okay to do that, to make mistakes, is kind of the really young stuff. Um, yeah. As we then work through, it moves a little bit from away from that implicit learning to a little bit more explicit 
Um, but it's for me, it still has this teaching focus. It's still about um, all those skills we've just been developing implicitly. It's now can we pre perform those within the context of the event? So again, I'm, I'm still not really going to teach your foot should be here at this angle, your arm should be doing this, but can you hit this takeoff? And we're going to play with the skills you've been learning within the context of the event. But in terms of my style moves away from this kind of performing clown and more into kind of a, uh, a mentorship kind of, kind of role. Um, yeah. And it's, it, it's about telling them why it is we're doing this movement so that they understand what this movement is within the context of the event and then allow them to play with it within the context of the event. Um, so I, I, I take, I mean, I, I take on very much a teaching style all the way through. Uh, yeah. But it goes from teaching con concepts to applying concepts within context. And then we're making the, the small refinements, you know, leading into competition. Yeah. Makes sense. So let's go into a, a let's think of a scenario now maybe where you've worked more in the elite end and you're working on a one-to-one -one basis. How, talk us through the process of working with that type of athlete i mean so from the beginning i guess, I guess if i've if i've if i'm just getting someone for a snapshot but for like can can we come and do a session i i always take a whole part whole approach um so let, let's warm up let's do so let's do a range of skills so i can see what you are likely to be able to do what maybe you're going to struggle with then let's do the event so I can see how that correlates. And then we'll go away. Let's work on this specific skill, give you something to take away. And, we, and then we'll apply it back into context by the end of the session. If we're doing um, a, a longer term plan, essentially I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm, I've already done that assessment of the athlete. I know what, what skills they've got. Um, but what I'm looking for is within the technique, what's the, what's the part of the technique that's letting them down? Where, where are things going wrong? Um, yeah. And say it's somewhere in takeoff in the, in the long jump, say there's, there's something not right in there. And then what is the skill underpinning that that we need to develop in order to get it right? So I like to, I mean, people talk a lot about periodizing strength training, periodizing running training, but I think you can also periodize skill acquisition um, yeah. because we know, we know how long it's going to take to develop strength we know how long it's going to take to develop speed well we know how long it takes to learn a skill really so i i work in three or four week blocks um in terms of skill acquisition we're working on this skill uh, we're going to learn it for a week or two weeks to introduce this new skill the second week we're going to start applying it in context and we're, and we're going to play with it within the context of the movement and by the third week you should have learned it and you should be able to show it to me within the context of the event and then we're going to move on to the next skill, or maybe yeah. we're going to redress this skill and take it to a, a higher level. Um, so I, I kind of take this periodized approach with, with skill as much as anything else. Um, yeah. And then of course you can, you can add that into your periodized plan as well. If we're going to, we're, we're going to redress a, a major issue, we need to know, well, how long is that going to take to redress so that it's ready for competition? Um, yeah. And if you really break a skill down, obviously it falls apart, but it goes goes backwards before it comes forwards. Um, yeah. But I'll look at 
exactly the same process really but we're doing it over a longer period of time we're going to address a, a few skills um learn relearn these really fundamental movement skills or these foundational skills apply them back into the context and then we're going to get them ready for competition um but in kind of doing these small cycles it means you're never really far away from the full event it's when it's when you break down the technique to a point that the athlete loses what they had it's very difficult. So I like to pick a skill, maybe maybe two skills maximum, redress it, put it into context, pick another skill, redress it, put it into context. And yeah. okay, we, we, we periodize that through the year, but I never want to be so far away from the event that it doesn't look like the event. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get the uh, process you're working through that. I think what might be useful for people listening is, it, could you maybe give an example of, that sequence of some specific exercises maybe linked to say long jump, what, how, where would it go back to and where would it sort of be progressed to over a couple of weeks from a skill acquisition perspective? So I had, um, I had an athlete who was international standard. Um, and I realized that he doesn't know how to do the penultimate step in the, in the long jump at all. It, it, it was not an aggressive, active penultimate step it was a breaking effect losing all of his speed and then would take off at a really high angle because he just slowed down into the takeoff so um so we went back we, we we tried to do some skills of teaching him the penultimate step and then i realized that he doesn't know how to do basic jumping and landing he doesn't know how to land on a flat foot with his foot under his hip which is before you actually use the penultimate step it's just knowing how to position your foot under your body so we went back and we did, as part of his winter training, we had a whole block, which was jumping and landing. It, it's the stuff we do with the kids, but he'd never been taught that stuff. So, Interesting, um, yeah. And that started off as a basic, as a basic skill, um, as part of his skill acquisition. And then jumping and landing, we could then, in, we could later on, once we had the skill, we could introduce it into his uh, gym work. We could do depth, depth jumps. We could do hurdle bounding we could then later on add that into his plyometrics so that he started so instead of doing normal bounding we were doing lots of skipping movements we had to learn to use the penultimate to then do his bound in the in the, in the skipping movement so we, we manipulated his uh his plyometrics to have a much more focus on the penultimate rather than the takeoff because his takeoff was actually good which is why i got so much higher um so we, we went through that process of basic skill increase the load um or increase the speed and then we can apply it into the event ready to go for the summer nice great example so i'm interested now to think about that now i know when you're working as an athletics coach you don't get the luxury often to work on a one-to-one -one basis so i know when you're in the uk you had a whole host of athletes that you were having to do that for and the same when you were in Qatar with your, your jumps group. I mean, how many did you have in that group by the end? There must have been eight. Uh, it's about or something. 14. It was the 14, whole group. Yeah. So yeah. how do you do that when you've got, how do you do that effectively and make sure everyone's making progress and progressing with their skills when you've got that size of group? Um, well, I, th I think there's, there's always going to be a certain element of, you've got a periodized plan and this is the plan that we're going to have to develop jumpers in general. Um, yes. But what I, what I, so we, we, we're going to be following something like a similar structure. What I then do is I split them off into groups. I try and cluster the athletes by what I, what I see. 
um, and what I've, what I've seen in my needs analysis. So there's going to be a group of athletes that are struggling with the same kind of skills. Some need to work on the penultimate, some need to work on the takeoff legs, some need to work on postures. Um, and the same with the physical training, you're going to have some that love the gym, some that need a little bit more capacity on the track, some that need a bit more speed on the track. So you start to try and identify athletes that need similar things. Um, and that doesn't need to be similar things. They don't need to be in the same group across the whole program. But just for today, while we're doing biometrics, this group are doing these exercises, this group are doing these exercises, this group are doing these exercises. Um, so it's same same training session, different exercises. But then within that, you can also um, progress and regress those exercises depending on the athlete. So we might have some athletes doing bounding, but some of them are doing technical bounding. Some of them are doing bounding for distance. Some of them are doing bounding for speed. So within each group, we're also differentiating with by uh, on the day so i'll plan the yeah. groups in advance and training in advance and then i'll make a call on what exercise like how we're going to do the exercises within the training session yeah but the people who are i i know listen because it's gone into my head so it'll definitely come up in someone else's head when you talk about speed bounding technical bounding and bounding for distance what's the difference between those three types of bound well i mean technical bounding is i don't really care how far you go i'm okay. looking for are you able to bound with control do you have control of your hips do you have control of your posture are you landing with a flat foot under the hip uh, those things so it might be bound and stop to show me these positions yeah. if i'm bounding for distance it, it means exactly that it's how, how many steps it take you to get from here to here yeah. Um, so we'll do that with his 30 meters, count how many steps it takes or or do 10 bounds and see how far you can go or yeah. we'll get them to bound for 10, we'll put the cone down so it can make a competition. Um, and then speed bounding is those who want to work on the speed of the, the, the speed end of the force, not the force end of the force, if that makes sense. So, um, so we'll do the same thing over 30 meters, but I'm going to time how long it takes you to get there. Um, so I love speed bounding because you just take how many bounds did it take and multiply it by the time it took you to do it. And it gives you a score, essentially. Um, and that's really the, that's the best tool I've seen for how someone can express force at speed. Yeah. 30 meter distance, count your bounds to within a half a bound or quarter of a bound and times it by the, the time it took you to do it. Yeah. Now, for anyone who's thinking of taking their athletes out tomorrow, and speed bounding them and calculating that there's a build-up process to that i would imagine what would be your prerequisites of uh moving say from you've described the technical bits the positions of the the posture the hip position and everything else the foot under the hip what would be your sort of prerequisites for someone starting to speed bound um well i think i think two two things one one it depends on the level of the athlete so have they been are their bounds technically good enough to even do at speed um yeah. and are they are have they done some work in the gym that allows them to um produce the force needed to do it at speed obviously as you increase speed force requirements also in, increase um um so do they have that background to be able to do it at speed but also where are they within the season 
Yeah. Um, we don't want to open the season with speed bounds and start pinging hamstrings yeah. everywhere. So it's it's the speed bounding is is we've done the bounding with or we've done the strength work. We've increased the speed, and I wouldn't do speed bounding until I've I've sprinted at full speed within the season. Yeah, that's good. Just wanted to put that in as a bit of a a safety uh, a safety check yeah. for people that all of a sudden are thinking I love the idea of this speed bounding and catching getting on with that and uh, not thinking about what might need to precede it. So that was good to hear. Um, just, we've gone down a little bit of one way. I'm going to, I'm going to pull back in a different direction now on um, thinking, trying to get, what I'd like to do is give people that listen to this podcast um, some really practical points if they want that they could go away and sort of start applying when they teach athletics, if it was tomorrow or if it's, you know, next week, next term. Um, so I think if we could go through maybe some ideas around how you would begin to teach or introduce certain um, athletics activities at, at, you know, say, uh, maybe starting at a youth level. I mean, uh, when, when I do my workshops, I always start with running and upright yeah. running um, because we're using it to teach posture. Yeah. Um, we're using it to create, to learn how to create stiffness, um, and to gain control of the pelvis and all of these skills are going to underpin everything we do. It, as soon as you get your hips pointing forward, your trunk pointing forward, your feet are going to be behind you and there's no, no sport where that's useful. You, you can't kick a football from that position. You can't jump from that position. Um, you can't do a layout from that position. So um starting with that upright posture gaining control of the trunk gaining control of the pelvis learning how to create stiffness so you can then move quickly and move well from that position is great so i start by teaching upright running and i i only use three drills um yeah. to do it and and i i tell the teachers that all the other sprint drills you see are basically fancy variations of these three you know they're progressions of these three drills first one is straight leg scissor which is how do we get control of the of the the trunk of the pelvis create that stiffness? You've got the high knee position. So in 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 the straight leg scissor, we're learning to create that stiffness and to apply a vertical force to to help us to go forwards, which most people don't really understand. They're trying to push backwards to go forwards. Actually, it's a vertical force in sprinting. Yeah. Then when, when you want to apply right. more force, when you're upright sprinting. Yeah. Um, obviously different in the acceleration, but once you're already up to speed, we apply vertical force. So then when you want to apply more force, you lift your knee higher, which is a high knee position. Um, and from there, we can start to introduce the coordination of the arms and that kind of thing. But essentially the high knee position gives us a longer stride leg, but it also really it's about applying more force into the ground. Um, and then it's how do you move from that straight leg scissor with your foot kind of finishes behind you? How do you get back to the front for a high knee? And it, we use it by, I, teach, I call it heel pickup because I don't like the bum kick idea. It gives you the yeah. wrong message, but heel pickup, i.e. we're picking the heel up into the hips. So the heel recovers into the hips and over the knee and yeah. it brings your knee back to the front in that high knee position. So I teach those three drills, straight leg scissor, high knee and heel pickup. And then we talk about running with rhythm. Um, yeah. And all the other drills are just variations of, of those things. Stiffness, applying force or hill recovery. Yeah. So that rhythm you're talking about, and I know this is something that comes through with athletics coaches in lots of the events. What is the rhythm that you're looking for? What will that feel like 
or sound like even with um, if it's done well. I mean, you'll see it. You'll see it more than your. I mean, the athletes you feel it, but the, you you can't. You you see the fastest runner in the world. Usain Bolt looks like he's having a good time. He he's yeah. so relaxed because you yeah. you can't move quickly whilst under tension, whilst whilst you're stiff. So you have to be running as fast as possible and be as relaxed as possible at the same time, which feels counterintuitive. So if you focus on having a rhythm to your running and increasing the speed of that rhythm, that's how you can run really fast at speed. Yeah. So you should see an athlete running fast and getting faster and faster and yet not looking like they're trying any harder. Yeah. So acceleration then. So we've talked about upright running. What's your approach to teaching acceleration um, with your athletes? So, uh, I mean, I start with it every single year, actually, is, is this implicit, implicit learning to acceleration. Because uh, I think we, we touched on it before, which is every athlete it has different anthropometrics. Every athlete has different strength abilities um, and therefore is going to be able to hit different angles in the acceleration um to, to each other but also each athlete is going to be able to hit different positions compared to where they were last year especially developing athletes as they get stronger as they're growing they're going to find they're going to find new ways to express force so actually with with my athletes will with the kids you you can play games you're getting them playing tag games you're getting them lying on the ground doing fun starts getting up from different positions and running it's always the to try and get them to fall into a shape and work out how to get out of it, which for team sports is incredible because obviously every time they have to do an acceleration, they're doing it from a position they've never done it before. Mm -hmm. So teaching them to do it in a straight line from static doesn't make a lot of sense anyway. Um, yeah. And you start to really refine positions. So I start with that anyway. And then we start to move it into either block start positions, sprint start positions, or if we're using it for something like a long jump or high jump, We'll do it again, try and even if we're not on the runway, we'll try and do it as if we're running on the runway. So we're, we're using acceleration for the first six steps of the of the acceleration in the long jump. So when we do accelerations, we're doing it over six steps. How fast can you go? How far can you go in that six steps? And then we'll also race each other, which for the older athletes gives them that different stimulus. And you'll see the first, they'll practice it. It'll be really beautiful. Be, it'll look perfect. You put them next to someone else and it all falls apart because they're long jumpers. They're not used to be, having people next to them. And yeah, you get, yeah. But the learning, a learning opportunity to say, well, if you can't do it under the pressure of your friend next to you, how are you going to do it under the pressure of 60,000 people in the stand and there's a camera in your face? You know, so that, that, that's how you can kind of play with the context with some of the older athletes. Yeah. Makes sense. Now I I know the uh, the people that are listening in that have come from an S and C background when they when they when we think about teaching acceleration the way that we've been taught it maybe through our, our S and C accreditation processes or you know the Exos athletes performance pathway uh, mentorship uh, type thing like there was a big focus in teaching acceleration using things like wall drills switch holds and switches. And those kind of things. And that was something which I expected coming to Aspire to see quite a bit of with the athletics coaches. 
Um, but it wasn't something I, I think I ever saw you use. And I barely saw any other. I saw, may, maybe saw it occasionally when someone was trying to get them to understand angles and positions. But why, why do you think that? What is that? Why is that something that isn't really a tool that you guys go to? But um, so I'm the same. I, I I have used it, but I've used it exactly for that reason. When I want an athlete to understand what those positions are, so yeah. it's very explicit learning. Here's where your foot is, and here's where your foot needs to be. And I want the yeah. I'm using that mechanical guidance to yeah. for them to get that kinesthetic awareness of where their body is. And but yeah. then we will use it to get that feeling, and then we'll put it straight into the run. Yeah. You doing these drill exercises against the wall with zero speed and zero force gives you a kinesthetic awareness, but it's it's not the same as sprinting. If you want to learn how to accelerate, you need to accelerate. So yeah. I think it's I think it's a really sexy thing to do when you're delivering a course because every, it's in slow motion. Everyone can see it. Everyone yeah. can see the positions. But I think it's a good learning tool. But it's probably best. It's probably just as good for the athlete on the side watching as it is for the athlete actually doing it. I'd imagine because they're yeah. both just going to learn positions. Yeah. So it has a place. But yeah, I would say like a lot of SNC coaches would probably use it as their first step towards sprinting, it, it, like for a warm up and things like that. So yeah, I but, think it's. But when you think about that, you're trying to get. Yeah, you're 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 going from people who have never done sprinting before to everyone should have exactly the same positions and they should look like this. Mm -hmm. And it's just not the case. You, you, when, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm six foot six, almost two meters tall. Yeah. The idea that I'm going to have the same positions as a guy who's five foot six, it, it's yeah. just never, never going to happen. The fundamentals are the same. What yeah. we're trying to achieve is the same, but the angles are going to be different. The way we express force is going to be different. The timing is going to be, or, uh, mine's going to take a lot longer than his. Um, the rhythm of it should be similar, but um, you know. So again, it's it's a good teaching tool. Everything's a good teaching tool at the right time. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't make a good teaching tool for every athlete, and it's not a good teaching tool all of the time. Yeah, I think actually something which athletics coaches do particularly well is really consider the differences in anthropometry, like with the athletes that they work with. It's not something that I think you necessarily get um, immediately from most other sports coaches or even with some SNC coaches. I don't think that appreciation is there, but I think you guys do, you know, you understand, you seem to understand that really well. Um, and it shapes what you do with your athletes. But I think our, our movements are quite simple. Like most other sports, again, the, these skills we're talking about, running, jumping and throwing, they're hidden within the context of another yeah. sport. So they all look different anyway because it's because it's in a different context. There's different people around yeah. you, different positions. Whereas when you sprint in a straight line, you can see the difference between athlete A and athlete B. And that might be because one's got longer shins than the other one and therefore it's going to express force in a different way to the other one. Um, but... You know, so we, it's, it's easy for us to see and therefore it's easy for us to make those smaller adaptations yeah. to our training. So moving away from running, going back to that idea of giving some people some practical um, things to take and apply. Could you give us some examples in the context of jumping? So 
again, so jumping when I when I do my school workshops, we start with skipping. Um, and how do we adapt skipping for each event? So again, that's what that's a fundamental skill that we can apply differently. So if we're doing long jump, for example, we're doing skipping with opposite arm and leg. Yeah. And we're trying to increase the distance we can travel, we can cover. When we come to high jump, we've got inside arm and leg. So we we want to skip or a double arm shift. So so we'll take the same exercise and we'll try and cycle our hands backwards behind us and time them with the driving knee. Both times we're trying to we're trying to get the timing of that that arm drive with the knee drive, and we're trying to get the knee to drive the parallel as the foot comes off the ground. But we've got two different arm actions in two different directions we're trying to teach. So I start with lots of that kind of stuff. It's really good for teaching the rhythm of the takeoff, that one-two kind of fast contact in the takeoff because it's skipping. It teaches you to have an active takeoff foot, same in all of the jumping events. It teaches you to have an upright posture that's going to help to control rotation in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's one skill. And you, you can skip in so many different ways. And it gives you that underpinning skill um, for all of the jumping events. So with, with younger kids, that is most, most of what the session is. Where there are older athletes, that might be incorporated into the warm-up. Um, and we can have, you know, obviously more difficult variations of skipping over, over hurdles, skipping for, for height, skipping for speed, that kind of stuff. But the, I always start for jumping. I'd start, start by getting athletes who can skip in every possible way and to yeah. do it with really, really nice control. Then the next thing is like we spoke about with this other, this other decathlete is it's okay being able to take off, but can you land as well with control, which mm-hmm. is going to help you with your penultimate step. Um, it's also going to transfer across to almost every other sport you jump up to catch a ball in netball. You need to land and stop immediately. We, it's, the, it's exactly the same movement pattern as when you do a penultimate step landing with flat foot under the hips. So all the jumping and landing progressions, again, can be hidden in games. Um, and then you can apply that back into your skipping. And now you have a really nice takeoff. Yeah. So that's two, two fundamental skills. And we've just, we've just worked out a really beautiful takeoff position. Add the rhythm from gallops or like that one-two rhythm. That's, that's your long jump takeoff. Yeah. And what about the running skills with jumping? How, how would, d- does that change at all? Uh, so the, the, it's in the long jumps, subtly, um, a lot of it is the same on the long jump runway. We're looking to run almost as fast as we can. Um, the acceleration wants to be really steady and really consistent, and we need to climb up into a nice high running position. So the only difference is, of course, we've got to do that all within 30, 30 or 40 meters. Yeah. The high jump is a little bit different because we're running around in a circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have, because we're going in a circle, we can have an inside leg taking a small step and the outside leg taking a long step. Um, so, I, I mean, again, I take those variations of those three drills and do a, a straight leg scissor on one leg and a heel pickup exercise on the other leg. And now we're learning that coordination of one side doing one thing, one side doing the other thing, which is essentially what we're doing on the curve. We're taking a small step and a big step, a straight leg and a heel pickup. And then obviously that's an exaggerated version, but we've learned the skill. Um, and, and that's what we're doing in high jump. The inside leg is essentially just creating stiffness and the outside leg is doing all of the running. Yeah. Interesting. So if we 
complete the set. We've done run, we've done jump. What about a couple of uh, some examples for someone wanting to introduce throwing? Uh, so throwing, in, I mean, we have we have four different throws. We have we have a push, a pull, uh, a heave, and a sling. So the pushing is the shot put. Yeah, uh, we're pushing from the chest like a bench press. The uh, pull is like the javelin. We're pulling over the shoulder from the armpit. We've got the sling, which is pulling from our chest, but pulling across the body. And we've got the heave, which is you know we're using our trunk to rotate from a low position to a high position, which is what we do in the hammer. So we can teach those four movement skills. Um, and, you know, the heave is moving from the body like you would in, in golf, something like that. The, the push is like a chest pass that you would do in basketball, netball. So starting with teaching those well, but as we do that, we can teach those underpinning skills that are the same across all of them. So all of them, we're looking to have our legs before arms, our legs producing the force, our arms adding the speed at the end. Um, so using put chest passes, throwing big heavy balls or even light balls for distance, using the legs first. Um, something like javelin is is great for that pulling motion, teaching that range of motion that we want. We don't want to have a powerful pull. We want to have the longest pull possible that gives us the longest time to apply force. It's not about applying force over a short period of time. It's about applying force for as long as possible to get up to speed. Um, Something like uh, the sling, where we're pulling across the body, is great for learning how to create that full extension at takeoff. So one of uh, at release. So one of the most important uh, throwing is really about height of release, speed of release, and the angle of release. So something like as we as we're teaching all the throws, that's what we're really looking for. So when we're doing the sling, I like to teach about creating that full extension of the body. So that we're releasing from as high as high as possible, um, and then what was the other one? The heave is heave is a turning motion. So our as as we're throwing our hips direct the direct the release position. So we need to turn from facing the opposite direction. Can we turn our hips all the way to the front? And when our hips are facing the front, that's when we're going to release. So you've got those essentially those height of release, speed of release, angle of release, but they come from legs legs before arms and and creating so that we get our legs producing the force and releasing from as high as possible and we want to have the longest range of motion possible and we need to have our hips directing the throw and that means the the direction of the throw but also the angle of the throw if our hips pointing down the throw will go down hip pointing up the throw will go up so again that uh, as i'm teaching introducing the throws we're throwing big balls heavy balls light balls any implement we can find, yeah. but we're trying to teach the fourth row and we're trying to teach those fundamental underpinning movements. Yeah. And I think this is something which constrains its delivery in PE as well sometimes is that a lot of the time they still think it has, to, you have to teach it with the actual javelin, with the discus or with, you know, a shot put, which yeah. obviously comes with challenges. And, you know, I can remember like kids going out to do javelin and they might throw the javelin three times in a lesson because you've got to be so controlled with what they what they do we're scared of you know people slipping and injuring themselves with these things or you know someone throwing at the wrong time and hitting someone with a shot a discus or a javelin which you definitely don't want what tools would you recommend for teachers or coaches to invest in 
for them to be able to teach this stuff? Because you mentioned like the heavy med balls or light medicine balls, but there's some other tools you might use as well, isn't there? Well, I mean, well, I, I did a competition in Finland. I did a decathlon in Finland. They had a, they had a kids uh, javelin competition. You know, Finland had the best javelin throws in the world. And it started yeah. with, with maybe seven or eight-year-old girls who ran in throwing tennis balls. Yeah. And we were embarrassed because we were doing the pole block and we're going to do javelin next. And these seven-year-old girls had better technique than us <laughs> throwing a tennis ball. And yeah. then, then, it was, then it was up to the 10-year-olds and they threw a cricket ball. Then it yeah. went up to the 12, 13-year-olds who are throwing the vortex. Yeah. And then, so the they, vortex then they, for anyone who doesn't know is an is a Nerf vortex. Right? Oh, a Nerf. Yeah, yeah. The 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 thing is, looks like a rocket, and you're throwing it whistles. Yeah. They were throwing that in Finland, yeah, which is the best javelin in the world. And then they moved on to the plastic javelins, and then yeah. only the oldest ones from about maybe thirteen or fourteen were throwing javelins. So yeah. almost almost any implement is okay yeah. because. We're, it, we're not in competition it's not the olympics we're we're learning to throw and i think the benefit of when you start utilizing those implements is then you can and you're not constrained by the safety of throwing the javelin the number of throws you can get per session is just on an absolute another scale which is what we want for skill acquisition right yeah and also if you're if you're throwing balls beanbags that kind of thing you can kind of throw towards each other a little bit as well without worrying too much. You can throw from one side of the hall to the other. If you're throwing basketballs, you can throw one to the other. Um, yeah. It can be a little bit static still, but at least everyone is everyone is involved in the session. Yeah. Um, and that's and, really the yeah. key with the throws is if people worry about safety and therefore you, you have to be so controlled with the, with the students, make sure they're not running in front of someone and throwing a javelin and setting up safety areas. And that's not that's not a fun and engaging way of doing javelin. Yeah. Whereas if you, let's throw this thing as far as we can. And meanwhile, you can have them running with sticks and doing javelin control. You can do them crossover drills with their stick. And then let's spend 80, 80% of our time doing that and 20% of our time throwing javelins. And yeah. then as they get older, you can start to switch over and spend 20% of your time doing this stuff and 80% of your time doing javelin. But the athletes are better and yeah. they know what they're doing and you're going to have smaller groups by that point. Yeah. I mean, it's from everything that you've described to me, I'm putting my PE teacher's hat back on. But, you know, the, the, the way you described in the beginning is like you spend one lesson on sprinting, you do one lesson on long jump, you do one on throw and you kind of move through this six week thing. And at the end, you have sports day. From what you've described and the activities that are there, it sounds and and how these skills take time to progress. They are you getting people to deliver more of this sort of run, jump, throw consistently over a number of weeks rather than or or supporting schools to do that rather than sort of one week on each event where you don't really because you think about it. I know kids that didn't throw javelin for the first three years because it rained on the week that javelin was due to be thrown in the summer. So they never threw a javelin in the first three years of school because that was the week they were due to do it and it rained. So they never did it. So is that other way I've just described sort of run, jump, throw the way forward for, for delivery of athletics in PE? I think so. I mean, I think you can do, if you put it down as jumps day, and we're going to do jumping skills. I don't really care which, which jump you use. 
Um, mm. Or you could also do both in one session. So if, we, if you're doing jumping skills, you can do a long jump takeoff and a high jump takeoff in the same in the same lesson. You can still experiment with the music with the movement, and then today we'll do high jump, or yeah. uh, and next time we we'll do long jump. Um, but also, I would say if you, you can you can be explicit in that this is athletics. But again, a lot of these skills could be incorporated into a warm up for other sports. Yeah. We're doing layup day. Well, then our skipping for height is going to come in really useful today. Let's practice yeah. getting our warm up rather than having some boring jog and stretch before the basketball lesson. Well, let's do some of our athletic skills in the basketball lesson. But yeah. when we're doing it in athletics, we're, we're in that six weeks or eight weeks, we're going to take it and we're going to apply it to athletics and we're going to be explicit about what we're doing. And if they've been developing those skills during other units of work like basketball and everything like that it's going to help you when you come to your athletics at the at the that time of year as well which is you know typically your six weeks in summer yeah i mean my my, i mean i'm not a i'm not a a pe teacher but my idea of, of if i ever went into pe would be to look at each of the sports and say what can we get out of this sport that we can't get out of any other sport so for something like like athletics might be jumping for height. We can people jump for height much better than they do elsewhere. Well, we can take that skill and let's incorporate that into our basketball and our netball and all these other sports. Um, but equally, in our basketball and our netball and these other sports, what can they give us that we that we wouldn't necessarily get out of athletics, but might still be a good transferable sport? Or what what skill do we need that they can teach far better than us? Something like gymnastics is full of uh, full of stuff in terms of what, why spend time doing your flexibility stuff in in athletics when you've got gymnastics is all about that kind of work or that rotational control in in gymnastics that we can then use in the long jump let's not teach rotational control in the long jump teach it in gymnastics yeah Yeah. great stuff so just honing in trying to maybe finish up on on i think another important thing to touch on around athletics i think the competition experience that you give young kids and you know, my experience of athletics competition was trying to do, you know, an 800 metre, never having done an 800 metre before. And that was the only event I was down for for the day. And I just died in the last 100 metres. It didn't leave a lasting legacy in my mind of athletics that I wanted to return to. So for you, I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. When you design and put together a competition for young kids going back to that point you made early on learn to love athletics how do you do it um for me it's about having athletes having students experiencing what athletics is and athletics is running jumping and throwing it's got some endurance in there it's got some speed in there and it's about allowing them to play with all of the events and find out what one they're best at uh, you know, and that might not mean that they're the best but every, every time I speak to somebody and they say oh you're an athlete when I was at school this was my event everyone has their one that they thought they were their, their yeah. event they were probably terrible or but the we need to the allow the teacher thought they were yeah 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 I we need someone to throw a javelin so you can throw a javelin you know and but but we we like to pigeonhole kids into oh, this guy's a sprinter this guy's a jumper this guy's a thrower but actually I think the kids just want to play athletics and if we yeah. want to play athletics, that means do all of it. So running little multi-events competitions is great. Yeah. So the kids are going to come, like you said, you, you turned up, I'm on the 800 meters today. So I've got to wait three hours to run my 800 meters. I'll come last and I'll get back on the bus. 
Well, yeah, what about if it. every kid did three events that day? Yeah. If every kid did three events that day, they'd all they'd all be busy the whole day. They'd find one went well, one didn't go well. We can reward the 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 student who did the best overall, but we can also reward the one who did best in each event. Yeah. Um, but um, so I think I think having that multi-events approach at at school is really important. Keep everyone busy. Yeah. I think we need to also not be so strict with the rules sometimes. Yeah. I think you have these rules in the long jump, you have to jump from behind the board. And so it, it runs a risk of kids coming in, they, they jump really well, but they got zero because they did three fouls. So yeah. having things like zone long jump, you can jump, run in and jump from anywhere within this one meter box and we'll make yeah. it from where you take off to where you land. That's yeah. that's a fairer way of doing it for these kids, and it, and it reduces the risk of having kids going going home with nothing. Yeah, yeah, I think that was something that used to come through. Like when I went into teaching, one of the things that my mentor said to me was, "Allow them to have success, you know, yeah. and then progress it." But you've got if they don't have success early on, you're going to lose them, and they're not going to be that interested in it. Yeah, and I think you also need to allow. Athletics is a tough one for how do you how do you get the kid that came last to feel like he won something, um, yeah. and but again, multi events is great for that because it's on a point system, and there's yeah. no reason why you should have that. Every kid who competes gets a number of points depending on either their position or depending on their, their the performance they put in. Yeah. Um, how far did you convert that to points, and that goes onto your team? So the the yeah. the, the athlete who turns up, like you said, you turned up, you came last in the eight hundred meters, but I earned five points for my team because I ran three minutes. Yeah. That that's that's a, a, did your team win or not? You contributed. Yeah. Um. So I think looking at that kind of way of doing, it, rather than just the first, second, third, get something, everyone else was a loser. Is is it's not a great way to run an event, really. No, no. I, I think having seen the way that you set up those events in Aspire and the engagement from the kids and the stuff we did with the schools um, just before I was, I was departing, you know, the kids coming in, doing stuff, having a go at loads of things. Like they were, they were great events and a complete contrast to some of what I'd seen, you know, at district athletics where, you know, we were taking kids and they do one. And I, I just think it's such a different experience. And I, I think, you know, look, looking back, looking back on it, I think, you know, probably quite a few missed opportunities with kids who could have been really good at something but never got a go at it because you know you were limited with the way the competition was set up. Oh, right, we need two for javelin, we need two for long jump, we need two for yeah. shot put, rather than that approach that you've described, I think is great. You just give those kids that exposure, allows them to find what they enjoy, allows the coach to see something that maybe they're better at. I think it's just such a better way of running it. So Conscious of your time, we've gone through quite a lot. We probably could go through a whole another hour of talking through some of the other bits that we had noted down, but maybe that's a, a chat for another day. Um, just um, people who are listening in that want to know more about Brockman Athletics, the way you teach athletics, um, wh where can they find you? Um, what stuff have you got going on that people could potentially engage with in the, in the coming months? Um, well, I mean, fastest thing to do is go to Brock, BrockmanAthletics.com. Um, so that's got that's you know, it's got everything on there. Um, but also connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I've got, I mean, I think I've got about three thousand teacher 
connections on there. So I'm, I'm posting on there some educational content, but also uh, stuff about my, my workshops I'm doing. So I, I do, do a bit of traveling roadshow, just come back from traveling around Asia. Um, I'll be doing the Middle East in January. And then I'll be in the UK to deliver schools workshops in in April May time. So, awesome. um, if, you, if you follow if you connect with me on LinkedIn, then you'll find out when I'm when I'm nearby. Great stuff. And you have some stuff on the TES website, don't you? As well, is that correct? Some free resources and stuff. Yeah, I've got a, yeah, I've got a shop on on TES as well. Again, if you, if you go onto my website, it's got they're all on there as well, and it will link okay. it, link it straight to TES. It's probably the easiest way to find it. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it's just teaching resources, lesson, lesson plans, interactive lesson plans with videos of me demonstrating the drill. So lots of teachers like to put it, put the video up in the class so the kids can kind of follow along, which is really great. That's a great but idea. then period assessment cards, technique cards, that kind of stuff. I know from looking at the resources that if I'd had them when I was teaching uh, athletics, I, it would have been a, a massive, massive benefit, especially some of those drills, which you're able to demonstrate really well. But <laughs> so some of us that are not as athletically gifted or prepared for um, might struggle to demonstrate to the kids. So I think you've put together a great resource there. And, and I know from having seen you deliver it with the kids at, across those different stages when we were working together in development and then watching what you did with the performance groups as well when I was working with other groups. You know, I, I know that stuff works brilliantly. So hopefully it's something people that listen to this dive into or, or come and catch up with you on the workshop. But thank you, Martin, for your time. It's been great to catch up. Um, and obviously hearing uh, your thoughts on this stuff is, is always uh, super interesting for me. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you for tuning in to the LTV Network podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to keep up with all the latest episodes. If you want to continue learning with us, sign up at www.ltvnetwork.com and access presentations and resources from experts around the world. Use the code FREEMONTH at the sign up to get your first month free.